it's very much on my mind and currently in my hands, which I think is one of the ways that my art and activism work together, right? To kind of give the heart space that we know when we're sitting and sewing, whether it's quilting or, or embroidery, there's something about the way that you're in your hands that shifts and carries and, and then releases. And I think that's a really important part for me around the way that I hold this work. That was Sylvan Robinson you just heard, sharing a little bit about how they conceive of their art working hand-in-hand with activism and creating a better world. You know, this show will be a little bit different because we had that conversation right after the shooting in Buffalo, and then just a few hours ago, we had another shooting in Texas. And I've been hustling to get this conversation out to you because I feel like there's a lot of wisdom here and there's a lot of reason for hope. And Sylvan gives us some really good ideas about how we can channel our energy into making this the world that we all want to live in. We need visionaries right now, just as much as ever. Visionaries can be big thinkers, thinking on the level of society, thinking on the level of the planet. But visionaries can also be people working in their own communities, working in their own homes, in their own families to make this a better, more habitable world. So I hope this conversation empowers you, inspires you, and equips you to continue doing the good work that so many people are already doing. Sylvan, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. I'm, I'm glad to be welcoming you into my studio and also to get a little chance to uh, connect and see each other uh, across the screen. Because Lord knows we've been trying for a while to make this happen. So I'm glad that <laughs> good things come to those who wait. Here we are, ready for some good things. That's good. That's Would good. you give us an idea of where you are right now? You said studio, but that can mean so many different things to so many different people. Sure. I have a, a studio in the basement of my uh, house. My husband and I live in, in Brooklyn. Uh, I actually have a small attic space as well, where I do more uh, of sort of painting and writing uh, upstairs. But my downstairs space uh, has dress forms and the large cutting table and uh, maybe seven or eight different garments on, in different stages of construction on the forms and 2D pieces uh, pinned to the wall uh, as I get to them or don't get to them, depending on uh, how I feel about things. So there's a lot of work in process all the time. I work on multiple pieces. And and then the, the floor looks like uh, somebody uh, left little glittering pieces of of bead and sequin and and glittery threads just uh, everywhere, uh, and uh, like Rumpelstiltskin has been working their magic and uh, turning things a little detritus into into uh, into magic and gold there. So, and it had to have been Rumpelstiltskin. It couldn't have been anybody else. Could it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I sometimes feel like Rumpelstiltskin for sure. <laughs> Well, tell us, what, what do you bring to sew on today? Sure. So uh, the piece I'm starting with tonight is a, a work. It's a memorial work. And I do 
uh, I, I'm an activist with Gays Against Guns, which is an anti-gun violence activist direct action group. And one of the things that I do with Gays Against Guns is research and share living remembrances for those people in the United States killed by gun violence. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I look for photos. I try to uh, gather information about their lives. Obviously, I, I'm looking at their lives because of the way they were killed and you know, killed by gun violence. But I try to hold and share and reflect the living person. Uh, and then as part of that, I, I make an annual garment. So, you know, I think last year I, I researched 150 people uh, out of the 44,000 people who were killed in the United States by guns that, that includes suicide. Uh, and then of that, some of the names that I, or the stories that I've made closer or more extensive connections to, I then uh, stencil and embroider onto a garment. And then those garments are sometimes worn in protest or in actions or in silent vigils. It's also just a way to sort of shift the stories I'm holding into a textile that then holds them in a way that can then be shared with others or can also kind of help me let go of some of the things that I, that I've, that I've held. I feel like over the year I hold that year's stories and then the garment kind of finishes the year. And of course, already I'm obviously gathering the names for, for 2022 uh, and thinking about particularly the violence that happened in our country this week around um, mass shootings. And, uh, you know, so it's very much, it's very much on my mind and currently in my hands, which I think is one of the ways that, that my art and activism work together, right. To kind of give, give uh, the heart space that, that we know when we're sitting and sewing, whether it's quilting or, or embroidery, there's something about the way that you're in your hands that shifts and carries and, and then uh, releases. And I think that's a really important part for me, for me around the way that I, that I hold this work. Yeah. I recently heard, Someone say, oh, it was Janelle Hardy who led the Sack of Sorrows grief workshop with us. Mm. That if you if she ever has a moment where she's kind of feeling disembodied, let's say, just not quite mm. present, almost like a, a trick or a life hack for her is just to go to where her hands are mm. and just focus on your hands mm -hmm. because there's a way we can create that channel. And it sounds like it goes both directions. I think Janelle is arguing <laughs> that hands can bring our mind to the present, but it sounds like you're saying that what is circulating in our brains can also work its way out through our hands. Both are true. Both are true. I would love to hear more about these annual remembrance pieces that you make. Um, and I think we'll circle back around to that in just a moment. I am working right now on the last stitches of my crazy quilt. I've been working on it for weeks now. I had no plans to embroider it as much as I've embroidered it. But once I got, you know what it's like, once you get started, more is always more, right? Yeah. So, as Lou Gardner would say. Yeah. And so right now I'm stitching a line from a, a song here at the folk school. It says, all God's critters got a place in the choir. Some sing lower and some sing higher. Mm. And I just, I love that. To me, that's just pure poetry. Pure and, poetry. and this great kind of inclusiveness of, of, uh, of, the being, of not just the people, but the other beings as well. Yeah. 
That's right. Uh, Humans aren't the only people, are we? Yeah. Yeah. So let's, I would love to get a little better sense of who you are, Sylvan, because I've been living in your orbit now for, well, probably two years if we were to really track it down. Mm -hmm. I feel like I know your work, but as a person, you know, you and I are just connecting. And I heard a story because I was doing a little homework before getting ready to to chat (laughs) with you. I listened to your conversation on the Dress Podcast, which is a fantastic conversation for anybody who wants to learn more about the fashion side of things. I would definitely Mm. encourage you to go listen to that because today we're going to be focusing more on the inner work of what we do with cloth. But in that podcast, you tell a story about a pair of yellow clogs. Mm. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that, you know, the question is where, where did costume and fiber and, and those things that, that have become such a big part of the work that I do in the world, both as an educator and as an artist, you know, where, do, where, where, you know, where do you trace those things back to? And, uh, you know, I, I guess, uh, as a small child, we lived in Europe for a while. And so, you know, that was a 19, I'm a, I'm a seventies child. So this was, a you know, a 1970s Europe where, you know, as a little queer person, uh, I knew everything there was to know about like, you know, Marie Antoinette and what they wore in the French court, uh, but knew nothing about like how to play baseball or my multiplication tables or other things that when we came back to the United States were a real issue for me. I wore for like picture day, you know, like I had my like Dorothy Hamill bowl haircut and some, you know, fuzzy orange sweater and striped pants. And, uh, and I had this, you know, pair of yellow clogs that I had gotten from Amsterdam and, you know, I wanted to wear, these were all my special things that I had all put together. But, you know, in the row of boys, uh, you know, in this, in the setting, they were all in like the same khaki pants with the same polo shirt from Sears, right? Not even the real polo, but like the, the Sears polo. And, and here I am like this, I mean, clearly like a Martian as far as, 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 uh, as my peers were concerned. Right. Like, I mean, I was like, as if I had dropped from another planet and, you know, I, I remember sort of as a, as a grown up saying to my mother, like, how did you let me go to picture day, you know, wearing this outfit? And my mother said, you kind of crossed her arms and said, oh, like there was ever anyone telling you what you could or couldn't wear you know, like you picked that whole outfit, like you, like that was a curatorially chosen, you know, all of the things were being put together in this special way that was just you. And, you know, of course the sad part of that is that like, you know, I was tormented as a little person for being that, that person, you know, that from a, from, from really from that moment, um, both my peers and adults too, you know, often were, were greatly unkind and, uh, you know, as a lifelong educator, you know, I hold a lot of space for little people who fortunately in the educational circles that, that I live in and work in are being met, appreciated, honored, and listened to in ways that were not the case for me as a little person, or even for that matter in college or in, in, in those places. And, uh, you know, but I think the whole outfit was also just part of I can see that my weird sense of color and pattern was already true 
<laughs> and there have been times that art teachers or design faculty have tried to beat that out of me. You know, in some ways, some of the things that people told me I shouldn't do, I kind of bunkered down in, right? And then you had to learn why was it so important. Uh, and I, you know, I, I would tell people sometimes when they were talking to me about costume design and when I was originally a costume designer in the, in New York in the nineties, I would just say, you know, I don't think I'm the right designer for you because you're really talking about something that's sort of normal clothes, minimalist, you know, like not noticeable. And there's so many people that would do a better job with that than me. I'm like, I'm the right designer if you want everyone to look like a drag queen. Uh, <laughs> and we do. And, we do. And, and, now, and nowadays, there's a lot more leeway for that. I mean, you know, you know, now that might be actually viewed as a real strength of me. But at the time, it was a little bit like people were kind of writing me off as, as drag was not something that you found in the high art categories that it can be found or even in the public culture that it can be found now. But I feel like, you know, from that little person, when I think about that setting, my studio has a lot of similar components to it. There are little jars of treasures that I just cannot quite organize in a logical way. And every once in a while, I I find something that I've forgotten was stashed away. And I think, oh, I should put this somewhere where, you know, it's a sensible place to find it. I I am marveling at... You as a person, I am marveling at your parents for the role that they played. I'm sure it couldn't have been easy on your parents to send you out the door wearing yellow clogs. Yeah. Right? But they did because the alternative would be maybe worse, right? And I and I, I think that... Yeah, I think that there was definitely places where, and I think this is not uncommon, where their fears about what might happen for me also then put them sometimes as the first people to, to to shame me or to, or to try to, you know, force me in other directions. Uh, and certainly that was a long time ago. Uh, and, uh, and there were times where, um, you know, I, I also, as a result, you know, as, as a part of that conflict or that tension, you know, also was sort of in harm's way. Um, as I think that a lot of young queer people are, right? That in some ways you feel like there's been rejection of you in the home and and then you're looking outside in a way that also in, in that in that era where I grew up did not include, you know, teenagers who found each other. It included me as a young queer person sort of in 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 harm's way, almost like you know, prey in settings that weren't really where a young person should be. And nowadays, as an educator, I see a lot more peer-oriented understanding of each other, not needing um, to seek some of that attention in in older people who might not necessarily um, be as uh, as supportive and caring as you'd want them to be, might have some other agendas attached to it. You know, that idea of boundaries as a as a way to help stabilize relationships is something that I think about a lot in terms of, you know, the balance between um, risk taking and, and, and resiliency, but also uh, safety and protection and uh, consistency. 
And I think all those things are true. I mean, as, as you know, when your work, when your handwork takes a long time, you have, you have to just keep showing up every day and get a little bit more stitched done or a little bit more for me right now. I'm, I'm hand beating, I'm hand beating the word violence as part of this memorial garment, you know, and that's a word that is, you know, that I sit with them for the whole time that I'm, I'm beating and think about the ways that, that that is true for a lot of us in the, in this current time, the, the lives that, that we're trying to protect are also encountering uh, violence and instability. And people sometimes ask me like, Oh, you know, that's, that must be really, that must be really hard information to hold um, around gun violence. And often what I think of is I'm glad that sometimes a family encounters gays against guns work and realizes there's somebody who's never met their loved one but who's, who cares enough to be learning their story, learning about their lives, approaching sharing their story with honor and respect. And that's particularly true when a lot of the stories that we try to hold in that way are, are the victims of gun violence who are transgender and who uh, you know, have a disproportionately uh, higher higher percentage of deaths of transgender people in the United States are by guns. You know, if there are, and, and sometimes at, at people at at the hands of people in their lives, you know, not, not necessarily stranger violence, but violence encountered in, in their own, you know, in, in the home, in community, um, in ways that telling those stories and holding those stories has to be done differently than the media accounts that often dead name them or misidentify them or uh or allow family members to sort of undo the person that they had been trying to become one of the things that i think about a lot like just this week with what happened in buffalo i was talking to somebody and it was, the conversation starts with how you doing and next thing i know we got some, she's crying there's so much going on. Yeah. Violence unleashes a certain energy, Mm -hmm. but like in the work that you're doing, you're harnessing that energy, trying to transform it into something. Yeah. I, I think for me that one of the words I tell young people all the time, for me at the heart of activism is caring, caring about other people, caring enough that you're willing to, sacrifice time and you know resources show, showing up uh, to to gather and to organize and to try to make a difference and part about activism is community care it's about showing up with other people to make actions of change towards a different outcome and uh, you know for me that all kind of arises out of of, of being a young queer person in New York when you know, in, in the eight, late 80s and early 90s, that meant showing up for people my age who were dying of complications from AIDS, who sometimes whose families had abandoned them, uh, to learn how to navigate medical profession and legal and, you know, arrange for care and, uh, you know, in ways that aren't, that generationally are very, are very common for a number of people in, in, in my age group and, and with that experience, but weren't the same experience that 
a lot of my college friends were having when they, you know, when they left college. I mean, my, one of my, I, I just came back from visiting my undergrad college, Bennington College, uh, where I was, I'm coming back to be a guest faculty member for a little while in the fall. And, you know, one of my lovers from, from my undergrad years, he graduated and was, was dead within five years. You know, like, you, you know, the idea that you could be, you know, graduating from college and, and five years later no longer with us um, is a really, is, is a generational loss. And I think young people today, you know, COVID, gun violence, climate, climate fears, uh, you know, these things are things where in some ways I feel a little bit like as a teacher of this younger generation, you know, I have a lot of empathy for the ways they are trying to uh, take care of themselves and each other and to, to imagine what the world is going to be like for them in the next couple of years and what resources they might need, what, what education might provide or not provide. And I think that this year, this current generation feels that they have also already had a lot of loss already. And, uh, and that as a, as a grown up in their lives, I feel, um, I'm not coddling that perception, um, but but present and 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 ready to ready to say like, well, what what would help? What what would it be like to have a queer mentor that didn't exist for me when I could have used a queer mentor? Like, what would that mean to be that that person? You know, to be helping them find that the world can you know offer. I mean, you know, one of the things about. My, you know, working on this this giant Met Gala project last year was that I you know I hired I know a number of of costume technicians you know uh, either right out of school or finishing school, and part of that was also honoring their work and skill and craft and saying, hey, you know, there you've gone to school to learn how to do these things, and and I and I see that, and I'm not going to like just have you come and embroider at my house. And then not acknowledge that you did that work, but I'm actually going to say like, this is a this is a really good hourly rate of pay for that work. This is what I'm willing to to, to cover, and I want you named when I share your work. I'm going to name you out loud because I want other people to see that your work is valued, and that um, hopefully other people will invite you to to work with them as well, and you will have a chance to build a livelihood uh, that comes from the skills that you've that you've spent all this time investing in and learning how to do. And I, and I, you know, I think that the idea of invisible labor in, in particularly in clothing making uh, is not a quality I'm willing to reproduce in my own clothing making uh, that, you know, I like the idea that there might be more now with some of the resources that are available to me, more, more hands, but they're going to be hands that I want to be, adding their own voices and their own experiences and not just, it's not, it's not a uh, textile busy work. <laughs> They're playing an active role in the creation of the garment. Yeah. 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 And quite honestly, in some cases with better handwork than mine, yeah. you know? Uh, so, you know, I will want to, I want to be like, I love how you did that. Do more of that. You're, you know, please come, please come back next week. <laughs> Uh, Sylvan, could you tell us a little more about the piece that you mentioned that you're working on now that you're embroidering with the word violence? Would you want to share the story of the person that you're making this for or what you're thinking of as you're working it or describe how it's coming along for you? 
Yeah. So the Garmin itself has, I don't know, probably 30 or 40 names of stories that I held over the course of last year, uh, you know, a, a range of ages, um, situations, although I do tend to focus primarily on the presence of guns in the home. So it's for, for me personally, one of the things that I, I know is that we tend to sort of stereotypically assess gun violence as being kind of an urban problem and, and urban gun violence is a specific thing. But that actually, particularly for women, for women and children, the, the deaths of gun violence are primarily in the home, are partner related or, or family related. Uh, so the garment has names that have been stenciled onto, onto fabric, some of its vintage quilt pieces that someone donated to me and said, I think you'd like to work with these. I actually have, I treat it like saffron. It's like, it's my, it's my super special little, a little bit goes a long way. Um, but I was gifted the salvage edges of uh, Gilbert Baker's original pride flag workshop scraps. Uh, so we're like where the serger took the edge off. Uh, and I, I use them very, sparingly i have like i have a little a little special magic bag of this of this rainbow trim uh and i use it particularly only if the pieces are particularly related to the history of queer activism so sylvan could you talk a little bit about the the quilt blocks that you have that you're working into that piece i sometimes get imitations from people who have grown to love my work and have for whatever reason family quilt pieces that never became a quilt. Uh, so I got really, really beautiful vintage textile that had obviously been cut to be pieced into a quilt. And some of it is pieced together, but mostly it's cut. And I've been using them uh, in part because I like the idea that they have a very family feel to them. The print themselves feels like the kind of uh, print that you might have made clothes out of uh, or that you're, you know, that an older relative might have used uh, in clothing or in some kind of textile project. And so it has a, has a bit of a vintage quality without feeling like that it's super vintage And the other thing is that they're also in good enough condition that I wasn't worried about them deconstructing or falling apart in, in the part of my process because I, I do hard things to the materials that I'm working with. I, I, you know, I'm, I can't use some of the really fragile vintage clothing pieces that people often want to give me because they won't, they won't hold up for the kind of assemblage quality that my textile work is really about. Um, you know, one of the things that people asked me in, in, when I was working on the Met Gala project was, you know, are you really going to use so much printed cotton? And I, and I was like, yeah, because I'm going to do horrible things to it and paint, you know, stencil it and run it through the sewing machine over and over again. And put, yes, it's one of my main ingredients is the sort of standard, um, you know, muslin and, and printed cotton. Uh, and then joining that with things that are not what you would normally combine expensive lace, uh, you know, sequined trim, upholstery fabric, <laughs> quilt pieces, you know, all that kind of stuff too. 
Well, and especially the quilt pieces for this particular project, since you're focusing on this garment on people who lost their lives from people that knew them, often people they lived with, right? And you have that home connection. In this case, a very uncomfortable connection um, that the, the quilt blocks bring into the conversation. And then currently I'm beading a back plate. Uh, so it's a sort of, it's a, a sort of a back panel and it says, uh, we honor and remember the 44,895 killed by gun violence in the United States in 2021. I also do a lot of like, um, there's text both on the outside of the garment and text on the lining on the inside as well. So there's kind of this inside out quality uh, to it. And currently for this garment, the inside is is sort of mapping the mass shooting incidents. So it doesn't necessarily list all the names, but it's sort of a, a chronological this week, this, you know, this mass shooting, you know, two days later, another mass shooting and, and sort of tracking that information as well. And this will be the second one. I finished one uh, for 2020 uh, and that piece has been worn in actions. And then it was also, uh, it's been, you know, it's been shown around the country. It's gotten a fair amount of, without a, without a person, without an activist inside of it, it really is a haunting garment because obviously then it's also about the absence of a body or the absence of a person. And I think when it's being worn in an action, it feels like a, a, a living vigil for the, the memory of people. So it kind of uses both of those qualities. Well, one thing I just got to comment, I love that you really take advantage of the real estate on the inside, the lining of the garment, you know, on a show called Seamside, where we're honoring the, the backside or the often overlooked side. It's really lovely to see it being used to the level that you use it. One thing that stands out to me when I think of these garments that you're making is you often display them on hangers, not on bodies, even though they are occasionally worn, you wear them. But they're so stiff. They almost operate in the sense of a container or a basket or something that holds space in and of itself. When I moved back to Brooklyn four years ago, I made a bunch of small doll sized pieces and just sort of hung them up in, in Bushwick, like in the, you know, barbed wire and trees and fences and things. And then I started making clothing specifically for activist work. And now I really am considering what it means to maybe make clothing that has a sort of a special purpose. Um, it might not necessarily be that it's so wearable on a daily basis. It might be so special that you, you know, you, you know, it can't be dry cleaned. <laughs> uh, uh, and some of that is about thinking about um, protection, but also celebration. Uh, and I think that one of the things that was, that really came home for me working with Jordan Roth on the Met Gala garment was that I was really, really working with a very specific person who had uh, an exploration around gender and wearing of identity uh, that I then brought my own experience to as well, uh, but made a garment that I never imagined I would ever make or could ever have been included in a category such as 
you have a piece that's being worn at the Met Gala. Uh, and as a result, have, have spent a good chunk of the year thinking about, well, what would I want Sylvan's fashion component of my work to really hold? And I think that some of this is this idea of, you know, Jordan and I talked a lot about the fact that as an activist, you're wearing a slogan that can be read and photographed. It's really a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a clear statement that doesn't need an explanation on a sign, on your jacket. The, the Met Gala piece was more of an, an invitation, right? A, a poetic expression of gender fluidity, gender nonconformity, gender queerness, you know, kind of all of those things may be different for Jordan than for me, but a kind of a combination of, of, you know, is it a gown? Is it a jacket or none of those things uh, or all of those things and deconstructing some of the idea that, that identity can also be feel restrictive, right? You can feel it some ways you've been a, a certain way all this time. You can't really be different than that. And that maybe there's a way that some of that could also be worn more loosely you know, or to unravel some of what you think about yourself to to recreate something. Uh, so all that was in that piece. Well, it makes me think of what Jordan said, sorry to interrupt, but it makes me think of what Jordan said and that what you ended up incorporating into the piece, that identity is a construction, just like this garment is a construction. Correct. And, and in some ways, a, a garment that was sort of unraveling and weaving and coming together and, and, and in some ways also kind of unraveling or coming apart at the same time as well. Uh, and I think a little bit about, you know, what so much of what I often want to say in the text work of my work is activist focused, you know, challenging, um, direct action specific, uh, obviously in the times we're in right now, I feel like that's going to continue to be something that, that falls more and more into a component of the garments that I'm making. But I also, with this project, really felt that I was also reminded that I could be making clothing that was about evolutionary, queer ecology, you know, the future is queer, uh, you know, a a non-binary expression of self or selves. And some of that is also thinking about the ways that environmentalists act in action, which isn't necessarily part of my regular practice. It's sort of something that I, I, I find very important and serious, but it's not, it's not where my immediate action uh, is often rooted, but has been, you know, obviously thinking about how that might influence the materials that I make with these, use with these things. Um, you know, I'm someone who loves to go into the fashion district and buy three inches worth of like some unbelievably amazing beaded lace or um, spectacular textile. And because I don't, because my work is all sort of textile collage based, I don't need a lot of it to be able to. And then I do horrible things to it. I run the sewing machine over, I stencil on top of it. I mean, so I, I often have this like insanely luscious thing that I've then done kind of crazy stuff to, but I have been thinking particularly as as values and materials can can become more aligned have been thinking about you know the idea that some that some of my work might need to be specifically only made of upcycled materials or dead stock when I do have fabric printed for me I print in very small batches I think that's one of the things that's 
know, obviously newer than it, than, you know, 20 years ago, that was a less available resource. And, uh, you know, I'm likely to order six inches worth of print fabric, uh, in ways that are exactly what I need and doesn't include, you know, a lot of leftovers, um, or then, and then to think about what to do with the minimal amount of leftovers that I have maybe differently than I would have five years ago, where they all just went into a bin or into the garbage. And now I think a little bit about how could they be used as the base of other things. And, and I will say that, you know, the more that you get exposed to the best practices of other textile artists, you know, they encourage you to be thinking about those things. I feel like with all the textile collage work that you do, you could really go deep, take a deep dive into using up yeah. scraps and bits and pieces. I, I do think that a little bit, though. I, I like like my my childhood bedroom. I'm a little distracted by the the, the prettier scrap, right? So I, I can I, I have a hard time getting back to, um, but I have been lately just been thinking about how many layers my work takes anyway, and maybe just using you know like when you're priming a painting you know, you often do a color, an undercolor that then everything gets built on and no one ever sees that the undercolor was orange or blue or whatever. And I'm thinking a little bit about like, maybe there's an under layer of collage that then is just the foundational layer and that, you know, that's part of the process. Totally. What do you say we move on to talking about your queer karyatids? Did I say that right? Karyatids. Yep. Yep. Karyatids. How does that fit into what you've been working on lately? So, uh, so Karyatid is a is a female statue column uh, that is uh, that are uh, seen in ancient buildings, and then sort of hold up the structure, and they're usually all the same. So you're seeing a sort of a row of female forms holding up a structure. I worked at a school. Uh, when I lived in Baltimore, that had an award that was called the Karyatid Award. And it rewarded invisible service to the community for no recognition. And I often joked that I thought that was a great idea, but like you weren't going to hear that at the boys' school across the street, right? It sounded to me a little bit like, you know, that maybe that's a place where like the Karyatid Award could have like been a really great idea, but telling young women that like you should do labor for inv- for invisible lack of recognition seemed to me uh, something that went against, you know, you should have a strong voice and be, you know, in, in your own agency. Not to say that the, the the qualities of service and community care that were as part of it weren't super important, but I felt a little bit like there was something kind of like rubbed me the wrong way a little bit. So I've been thinking a little bit about the idea of what kind of support would queer karyatids be? Uh, and they certainly wouldn't all look the same. So that was initially one of the ideas. And they and they wouldn't necessarily all be human. So like, you know, there's embedded in these in the imagery, uh, you know, the work of bees and uh crows and and um and and statuary, as I've gone back into the sort of love of art history and thinking about gender and art history, so I'm, I'm kind of queering or requeering some of that imagery, that gen- very gendered imagery that comes out of uh, out of the uh, ancient Greek and Roman, particularly uh, that you know I was raised, you know, reading Greek myths and thinking about. 
uh, all those stories. And then again, as we said earlier today, had, had spent time in, in Greece and uh, Rome as a child. And, but thinking about how in some ways this idea of, and again, we had just come back from this great trip to Pompeii recently. I've been thinking a little bit about disaster and the end of an empire and the great inequity of a society for which when we go to visit these sites, we're seeing the what are the, the the most beautiful craft mosaics and statuary and architecture for the very wealthiest uh, of that society. You know, they weren't protected from that disaster either. So I've been thinking a lot about what does it mean to acknowledge, you know, my own work as an artist is often celebrated in places for which people can afford that work, that labor, that high-end craft that I bring. And it's one of the reasons why I do so much work with my own art in the activism in that way that is freely given, uh, is not about uh, consumerism of the, of the object, but it is true that you know, some of the work that I'm making now is very, very time consuming and precious and also in that regard, expensive uh, uh, in the gallery or in a museum setting is it lives in those in those places. And so the queer caryatids idea is really about like, well, how could we build structures that were more disaster proof uh, or that deconstruct at the same time they're actually constructing uh, structures of safety, structures of allyship, uh, relational strengths around difference and inclusivity, as opposed to you know, the original caryatids that are all the same, uh, that are specifically thinking about the ways that gender or non-gendered approaches to this topic are, are part of a strength, right? That we have a stronger structure th- through not expecting all of the parts to be from the same experience, as opposed to rigidity and restriction and limiting of of the way that people express themselves. Uh, So I'm, I'm partially, I also just feel like personally, I need structures of support that don't exist right now. I can see how in my own life, I am a structure of support for young people, young queer people, particularly Um, you know, causes that I believe in, but I sometimes am seeing that there's a a community resource that's missing if that's going to really be sustainable. Um, And I do think that partially part, one of the things that's been great this year is having conversations, is I'm meeting people through the textile work that I think are actually part of that whole wider process of caring for other people in their own way and having conversations about difference you know i mean i think that that's partially what we're doing tonight here in this conversation is being people in the world who have who are inviting other people into a conversation around making things and listening to each other and and so i would i would say partially why i chose to work on this piece tonight with you is that you know thank you for being a component of my queer caryatid study and uh and uh and and being a voice amongst uh, other voices that that are listening and sharing this experience with me. Hey, happy to help any way I can. <laughs> For those who can't see what you're working on, because you went to get a piece off the wall a few minutes ago. Is that one of the caryatids? Yeah. Can you describe what one of these might look like for folks? That- 
Yeah. So currently I'm making what could be a, a, a two-dimensional textile column. So thinking about that these might go together, you know, in a row, like the, like the traditional karyatids would be, uh, although they're not as formally the same. Uh, and then the surface is a textile collage of image, uh, including my own photographs of uh, sculpture and uh, architectural details from, from uh, trips to Italy and museums. Uh, so it does have some deliberate use of antiquity uh, that I have then colored, you know, embroidered lipstick on or added wig hair to um, uh, mixed in with kind of a, a playful and also decorative, but surreal, I guess would be a good way of describing it, kind of a mixed use of textile, decorative textile to make a kind of a more fanciful and whimsical uh, version of structure and, and, and a support mechanism. And this set are kind of smaller. I imagine that if uh, I were to realize my idea of sort of, of, of maybe doing more of my own fabric textile design, that I might be making versions of this that were temple pillar sized. <laughs> These ones are about two feet by a foot wide, right? These are these are living room size. <laughs> you have a number of ongoing projects. It sounds like this. you've started another one here recently. Yeah. <laughs> but you also have the idea that I, I feel like is connected thematically of your urban fae and what you're thinking mm -hmm. about with those garments. Can you share us how you got started with those? Yeah, I, I made... Uh, so originally, before I moved from Baltimore... Uh, my now husband, but then a long distance boyfriend, uh, went to visit me in Baltimore. And when I was working, went on a nature hike at, at uh, this place called Lake Roland in, in Baltimore. And they had an outdoor sculpture, you know, a year long outdoor sculpture uh, exhibition that they did, like in the woods, right around this, this uh, nature preserve. And he's like, you should apply. And I thought, yeah, but my work doesn't go outside. <laughs> it's not really like, it's not really, you know. And so I, I, you know, I looked at the application and I thought, I don't normally think of myself as someone who makes earth art, which was a lot of what was being shown. But I made a proposal around using uh, like the kind of fabric that you would use for deck furniture so that it wouldn't deconstruct while it was outside it would be heavier and, uh, and I would do my same normal thing, but I would be using materials that I knew at the end of it being exhibited, I could carry back out and it wouldn't do any harm while it was, was there. Uh, and so I, and I got selected and I made a small number. I, my idea was that like our world was tipping towards trouble and somewhere along the, the fairies of the world had moved on to like, like the elves in the, in the, in the Lord of the Rings, whatever. Like they were like, we're done. You guys have really messed this all up. We're, we're not hanging around, but they had left their garments, right. Kind of hanging in the trees and they had 
and they had slogans on them. So it was the first time that I moved from activist messaging to this sort of intentional, like they said things like, you know, re-enchant the world, uh, earth path, uh, you know, honor the hive, right? So, so things like that. And actually I hung the pieces up and within 24 hours, someone had come into the, into the preserve and had destroyed uh, art that had been installed in the, in the exhibit. So someone had come onto this property that wasn't theirs conceivably mad that there was art in the woods, like this idea that like there shouldn't have been art in the woods, but my pieces were like, you know, 20 feet in a tree. I mean, they would have had to have brought equipment with them to have, you know, I mean, I was setting them up to be up in the winter all, you know, nine months in a tree without coming down. Uh, And I went back with a friend to go to see if we could find them and actually found a couple of pieces that had been thrown into the garbage at the end of the preserve. And I, and I just reinstalled, I mean, I made new pieces. I hung them up back up organization, you know, made some efforts to try to figure out what had happened. I wasn't the only artist whose work had been destroyed. Um, but I, I, you know, and I thought about like, Oh, I like this idea of making clothing without the body in it. Right. This idea of, but now I'm thinking about like, what would it mean to make urban fay? or protective wear for urban fairies that was more like what I did for Jordan Roth for the Met Gala, like a super special garment that's about celebrating and being and, and wearing some of that intention in a very, in a very visible and uh, fashion art fashion kind of way. Um, so I'm, I'm back to thinking about these things that I made that went out in the woods. And now I'm thinking about making similar clothing capes primarily i'm working on i'm right now i'm working on capes that's my my first start is a cape that uses some of the things that i did but i'm already working on what would a jumpsuit version be like and uh what would it mean to have some kind of big puffy sleeved uh long coat uh you know and all of that so uh and i'm and i'm working with a great new assistant i'm kim griffin who's a, a costume designer who I work with at the Met Gala and, and she's working with me on sort of the pattern making aspect of that and the wearability, like, you know, maybe the linings can come out. So they're somewhat washable. Um, obviously the pieces that went out in the woods, they didn't have to worry about any of that. And the doll size pieces that went up in, in Bushwick, some of which lasted for a long time, other as of which were um, taken by people who were thinking that they just, got a new great little art piece to bring home. <laughs> Although I will say the Bushwick pieces stayed up longer than the Lake Roland Baltimore ones did. So, <laughs> well, um, You and Lou Gardner, both who was my last guest on the same side, among other artists, for sure, must be intuiting a need for some superhero pair. Yeah. I thought of that when I listened to, to, when I listened to your, your last guest, right. I, I was like, Oh, we're in a, you know, we're in a, there's some serious um, synchronicity of, of, of thoughts and energy. Yep. I need to introduce the two of y'all. I would yeah. love to see <laughs> what the two of you with your minds together could come up with. I've been, yeah. I mean, I think that I'm currently thinking about, you know, you might, you might, if I were, if I were describing this as sort of a, a, a thematic curatorial 
show. I feel like my work, all these things combined are things like, you know, love in the ruins or remembrance and resilience, uh, that there's always this tension between uh, the mourning that I feel like we have to be reckoning with right now, the, the mourning of the environment and the uh, limiting of, of, you know, reproductive freedom and, uh, you know, the violence of, of, of the country that we live in and the world itself too. But there's such a vibrant, as someone who works with younger people, you know, I do think that there are ways that they are just nicer to each other or more, more generous than, you know, my experience as a young person was, and they want you to treat them a certain way. They, in some ways, expect that people will treat them a certain way. Uh, and I don't think it's naive. I actually think it's really, it's their own way of, of setting boundaries and community care. I think where, where that goes for me a little bit are thinking about ways that sculptural work, 2D work, clothing, and memorial work all kind of come together in some kind of not one of those areas can do all of those things. But I will, I will say that this project that I've been, I've been working on now for, for, for many, many years, this, this burning times project, uh, I think holds like all that I know how to do invariably comes back to this, this project that I began in, in graduate school and is now in its many, many years. And I, I make handmade poppets for specific people who were uh, killed as witches. It's a very small number of people uh, in our country compared to the, you know, the centuries of persecution that primarily women experienced in Europe and in England and Scotland and other places as well. But I feel I only work on that project for, for, for limited sections of, of the year that I don't let that work consume all of my time because to live in that idea of the injustices and the targeting of your own families in some kind of hysterical fear-based persecution. And I worry that there's a lot of that history that is in the rhetoric and the persecution and targeting of people, you know, trans people and who were some of the women that were being persecuted as witches in the witch trial era were, you know, midwives and people providing what then would have been birth control or abortion or women's health care. Or I guess I'll say that one of the pieces that I would, I always want to talk about that's not mine, but is one of the pieces that I always come back to is this Agnes Richter jacket she was a seamstress in Germany and was institutionalized for being difficult. She never left the institution afterwards, but she embroidered her story both on the inside and the outside of her garment that uh, she reconstructed and, and wore. And in the 80s, it was rediscovered and it's in a museum. Uh, it's probably one of the most I'm holding on to who I am, despite all the things that you've tried to do to me, that like my that my craft has preserved my life despite all of the things that that society tried to take from her. Um, obviously, that's a kind of a, a modern feminist um, lens to be looking at it through, but I don't think it's wrong. I just think that that, uh, and I think about what 
could fiber artists and textile makers were all experiencing a rebirth and a surge of interest in our work. And, you know, you go to galleries now or you go to museums and craft and fiber and quilts are all, you know, all the variations, weavings and embroidery are all prominently figured in a way that maybe 10 years ago they weren't so much. And what do we want to say? You know, what do we want? What do we want to share? What, what kind of, legacy and lineage for those of us who acknowledge that most of that work when it was in times where it was written off is because it was primarily female labor, invisible female labor, household labor. And maybe there's just ways in which, you know, when you get together and do a quilt project together and people share their stories, you might be crossing some of the places where people don't feel comfortable asking or um, being as inclusive as they do when you're all sewing together. I find it's a funny thing that happens. I've had a few times during this residency, we've had small quilting bees or even just me and one other person sitting around the frame quilting. And there's just this air that settles around us because we're sitting in such close physical proximity to one another and we're both sitting doing these really minute actions of rocking this needle through all the layers, you know, we're working on this common project that this bond develops really quickly. And before we know it, we're telling each other things we ain't told anybody else, at least in a long time. So there's so much power in working with other people and working with textiles combined. And what I appreciate so much about your work is how you are so interested in remembering and creating those spaces. You're also interested in pairing that with empowering people today with the tools they need to help continue to create the world that we all want to live in. I think it's a beautiful thing that you're doing, Sylvan. Thank you. And uh, and thank you for a great invitation to, to have a little time sewing together uh, across distance. I look forward to uh, welcome you back to Brooklyn when you get back here and uh, and getting a chance to actually you know, have coffee and sit in the park together and and do a little handwork. Uh. That would be a dream. I'd love that.